Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear. And if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing. And their tagline is turning clothing into gear. And they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Well, folks, we're at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous in Boise. So if this sounds a little bit weird, it's because we're in a great big auditorium and it's the audience speaking and coming up and doing the questions. So if the sound quality sounds different, that's why. So I'm going to hit the button and Corey and I are going to start answering questions.
Thank you. Are we are we live? We're live. Are we ready, Marcus? All right. Marcus says if we're ready. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't thank the people who make our Elk Talk podcast possible. Um, it's Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is the number one underwriter, funder, um, title sponsor. Um, over here we got folks from Gerber. Andrew and Natasha, uh, they make that possible. Corey's holding one of the other people who make that possible. I'm holding one of the other people? Uh, whatever, they knew what I meant. <laughs> <clears throat> Rocky Mountain hunting calls. Uh, who else we got? Go Hunt. Anyone here from Go Hunt? I know they got a booth up there. Just remember, just about every place that we talk about, use promo code ELKTALK and save money. It doesn't work at Dairy Queen, though. People have tried that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we've on, tried. Yeah. But on X Maps, I know it works there. Yep. We got covered them all? That covers them. All right. Who wants to ask the first question, or you guys just want us to talk? So when you ask a question, you got to come up here because we're recording you live. You, you are on Instagram Live. I don't know how Instagram works. Uh, some of you were asked to take a picture with me today, and my social media person said, Randy, tell them to tag you. I'm like, what's that mean? She said, don't worry about it. They'll know. So, uh, so you're on Instagram, and you're recorded. So you're, let it rip. All right. So this question is for Randy because he runs Kinetrex. Um, I'm making the jump to get some nice boots for myself, but I want to make sure that I'm getting the right fit so I don't end up with a bunch of slop in my boots and have issues with bad feet. So any tips you could give me would be awesome. Yeah. Any, this is any boot, uh, you know, I use Kenetrek, you use... Zamberlin, Crispy, yeah, yeah a couple different but Getting the proper fit is absolutely important. How many times did dad say... Because dad knew you were going to grow a little bit, so he'd say, oh, get it a size bigger so you can put some extra socks in there. Well, really, dad was a tightwad, and <laughs> he didn't want to have to buy you new boots every year. Don't buy a size bigger. Go to a place that knows how to fit your boot and get the right size boot. And uh, the other part is make sure the platform of the boot fits your foot. Like I've, my wife says I got Fred Flintstone feet. Like I've got like really flat arches. I've had a, a posterior tibia, tibial tendon removed and shortened. So I don't have an arch to my feet. So I got to select for a boot that is comfortable that way. So. You know, I'll just add, I, I use Luco tape and I always, doesn't matter if I'm hiking hard, my feet are going to get hot spots somewhere. I use Luco tape preventatively, so I'll put it on my heels, on the bottom of my feet, and it'll stay on for until you shower. So it's just a great way, you know, to take care of your feet and make sure you don't get a blister. Because once you get a blister, even if you have the best boots, you're still, you can, if you're on a side hill for a long time, you're going to get hot spots. And once you get that, it's, it's tough to recover in a couple of days, so... Preventatively, I just use Luco tape. You can buy it on Amazon for like four bucks or six bucks or something. And also, don't skimp on socks. I mean, buy high quality socks. For me, socks make or break how well my feet perform. And I mean, those are your wheels. Take care of them. 
Uh, quick comment that relates to my question. Um, it'd be great if you had a show or a podcast on how to punch a late season cow tag for inexperienced elk hunters like me. Um, specific question that relates to the cow tag, I've drawn it from Minnesota and been out elk hunting twice and it's been during the rut, either archery or rifle season that was during the rut, so it was a whole different dynamic. So this year, um, drew a late cow tag in Wyoming, all I could afford, and I didn't have two points anyway to get the general elk tag. Um, I'm in a unit that, uh, I'm getting conflicting good advice on both sides. I'm in a unit that has, the tag normally starts December 1st and goes to December 21st. Um, but this year they have high population, so they're, which is good. So this late season, they're moving it back to November 15th, but that overlaps with earlier type four tags. And so some people are telling me, one person who's hunted the unit um, from Minnesota successfully, he said, there's, there, there's a mostly public land unit, but it has chunks of private land where elk can hole up, and it's heavily motorized, and there's a lot of illegal ATV use. And he said, you know, just wait, just go December 1st to when that other season's expired. And then the biologist is telling me um, from the area, well, I, you could get bad weather in December. Um, you know, go, go if, you, if you have the option, go early. So anyway, and I've, I've gotten arguments like this from both sides, like, oh, the hole up, and they could go on private land if you go late, and sure, you might avoid pressure, but you won't be able to get to the elk anyway. And then other people are saying, you know, bad weather, you know, um, just go early. So anyway, what would you do? <laughs> <laughs> Corey wouldn't go because they aren't bugling then. <laughs> You want to take that one? You know, you, you have a lot more experience with the later season stuff. Uh, for me, though, uh, it would depend on if it's a migration area. If they do actually migrate and move out of there, that would be a consideration if, if weather is a timing factor for them. Uh, and if they end up on private land, you don't have access. I, I don't worry as much about other pressure from other hunters because I'm going to try to find the area where there's not going to be that pressure and get away from them anyway. So if it's a, a concern that they might migrate onto private land later in the season, I'd probably opt to go a little earlier and just find those areas away from the, from the other hunters. I'd probably do the same thing. First of all, it's whatever fits your calendar, right? Um, and then when you're in a late season pattern like that, cows are always in a feed pattern year round. They're even more in a feed pattern when it starts getting cold and snow like that. So if you have a unit where there's really no good feed sources on the public and they have irrigated alfalfa down low or something and it is a migratory herd, I'd be there sooner before they get on that the private because a lot of times when they get on that private, you don't have enough love or money to get them to go back to the public. So. And, and now you'll go there early and you'll call us and say, that was a dumb idea, guys. <laughs> um, so earlier today, we got to share my daughter's first hunt experience with you. And I was wondering, because it's now our favorite experience, what is your guys' ultimate favorite hunting experience story? Oh, mine's easy. I'll let Corey think about his. But in 2005, any of you who... Uh, 
apply in Montana, you know the Missouri breaks is a rifle tag there is almost impossible to draw. And my son is the luckiest. Uh, those of you who think I'm lucky at drawing tags, I just get the leftover luck that my son doesn't use. He's 15. He's like, yeah, dad, I'd like, where we walleye fish up there by Fort Peck? I'd like to apply for an elk tag there. First year draws the rifle elk tag on the south side of the brakes. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So we go in there two days before season, and we go down into the brake country far from the roads, and these bulls are still bugling on October 23rd. I'm like, this is just way too good. Well, my out-of-shape brother from Minnesota, I can pick on him because he doesn't listen to our podcast. Uh, and he's, he's bigger than me, and he could beat me up, but I can run faster scared than he can mad. So... Uh, <laughs> Anyhow, he comes out and uh, we just have this great time. And every day, this really big bull is down there just bugling like crazy. Opening morning, we go in there and my son shoots this elk right away in the morning. I am jumping up and down, screaming and yelling like uh, I'm so excited. And he looks at me, Dad, it's just an elk. I'm like, no, you don't get it, son. So we walk down to the elk, and it's really big. And while we're, this is where I'm going to age myself. Some, I'm looking, there's some people in the room who are going to get this joke, but my son didn't get it. I looked at that big thing. I'm like, son, this is like having Bo Derek as your first homecoming date. <laughs> he's like, huh? And my brother, he's like, he doesn't get it. He's only 15. I'm like, oh, yeah, oh. So we spent the next two days packing that elk out of there. And it was that time in his life where he's going from being a young person to a, a young man and to see him shoulder that elk and carry as much as he could and take his own trail back to camp. And, you know, I, I was worried about him. I'm like, man, what if he takes the wrong turn? What if he this? What if he that? And... He didn't, and that was, for me, that was kind of like a turning point in my son's maturity and, and the fact that I got to spend it with my son and my brother. That's uh, like, is it Ashton? Was, was that her name? Who, where, where'd you go? There she is right there, yeah. Uh, when you were telling me that story earlier this morning, I, it made me think of that, and so I suspect a lot of you you know, first elk with your child or first deer or whatever, probably similar. So, Yeah, same for me. You know, I, <clears throat> I think probably, sorry, <clears throat> up until five or six years ago, it was all about me hunting. And, you know, those experiences, if I'd have been asked that question six years ago, it would have been, oh, the biggest elk I shot or this elk that I called in for a friend or something. But when your children start to uh, become your hunting partner, I think from a young age, you know, they're, they're a part of it, but when they actually have a license and a tag and they're there as a hunting partner, it changes uh, perspective, I guess, and becomes more important. And for me, you know, I, family's everything for me. And to be able to go out, I remember my son's first hunt, but it's actually not the most memorable one. Uh, Isaac is 16 now and he's successfully killed four elk and doesn't even have a clue 
what he's done. But uh, we, were, we had an opportunity to film a film with Sitka Gear and Yeti a couple of years ago called The Linguist. And if you've watched it, you, you know the story I'm about to tell. But Isaac was 13, I think, at the time. And he wanted to be a part of it. And they wanted to film me passing on the tradition of hunting elk and calling elk specifically to my son. And so I told him, they aren't here to film a hunt. They're just here to film you and I out in the woods, sharing some time, bugling, you know, I'll bugle and then you bugle. And it's kind of like I'm teaching you. And he's like, I know how, I know how to bugle, Dad. You don't have to teach me. I'm like, play along with the roll, buddy. And uh, so we... The, the sad part was he's playing football. He had a game on a Wednesday night and season closed on Friday. So we had Thursday and Friday to hunt. And so I told him, listen, you shot a bull with your rifle last year. You want an archery hunt. There's a film crew here. It's not going to happen. Don't get your hopes up that you're going to actually kill an elk. We're just going out to, to hunt. Oh, yeah, Dad. I shot an elk last time in a day and a half. So, you know, <laughs> this is going to be easy. We have two full days. And we picked him up from his football game. And, and as luck would have it, in the football game, I just have to share this part of it, because in the football game, they're down, or they're up by one point, the other team has the football, one play left, there's six seconds, they're on the three-yard line, they do a handoff and a sweep, the guy goes around the corner, and my son, at that time, it was his first year playing football, he comes flying in from the side, and knocks the guy out of bounds at the half yard line, saves the game for him. So everybody's carrying him off the field while this film crew's over there with red cameras that cost more than my house, filming him getting carried off the field by his football team. And now we go out into the elk woods and he's riding that high. And we go up first morning and go out, we get into a bull, it's not really responsive. So Isaac says, dad, let's locate, relocate and go over to where I shot my bull with the rifle last year. So it's a three hour drive, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon four o'clock in the afternoon. And we take off driving over there and it's 30 minutes before dark. And I said, we better just stop here, hike out this ridge and hope there's an elk. And that's all we did. We walked out 200 yards, let out a cow call. And before the cow call even echoed across the canyon, a bull responded. And long story short, 30 minutes later, we were uh, high-fiving, and uh, it was just picture perfect. I put him down there, and Isaac, you have to understand, he's, been, he's had a bow in his hand from the time he was born. He loves the outdoors more than, more than I could ever imagine myself loving it when I was his age. And he's got this camera over his back. I send him down 60 yards by himself in front of me, and I said, just go get on the edge of the meadow, make sure you arrange stuff. And the cool thing for me wasn't necessarily just knowing that he had shot a, an incredible elk on film. It was going back and watching the film and seeing him do everything right instinctively. And he ranged things, he got things cleared out at his feet. He drew back at the right time, the bull stopped. He took a perfect shot. I mean, his follow through on that shot was cool as a cucumber. And so for me, the, the coolest memory I think I'll ever have of hunting is following him when we're 40 or 50 yards from the elk. We had to track it for a little bit we, it, just because we couldn't find blood. It only went 150 yards. But as we're walking up on it, being behind him and seeing him see that elk and then turn around and look at me and just that look that he had that I did it. I shot an elk with a bow and it's something he probably won't ever forget. And I know I never, never will forget. Fun Thank you for that you, question. Yeah, fun seeing all the younger people in here. Uh, regardless of what your parents may tell you, don't listen to anything Randy and Corey say. <laughs> <laughs> the advice you get here is probably worth what you paid for it. So, uh, 
I'm relatively new to elk hunting. I uh, got my first two years out, and the first year trying to get up on elk, calling, nothing. Heavy predator issue in the area, a lot of wolves. Um, the only elk, the only bull that I heard the entire time was a rookie mistake, and they caught wind of me. The whole herd took off, and bull ripped, and you know they're in the next drainage within two minutes. This past year, one out, I got lucky, came across a three pack of satellite bulls, but the entire time I'm calling, I'm not getting any responses back in these areas. Any words of advice or tactics that you can utilize to maybe try to get one of those bulls to get fired up in those kind of areas? I'll leave that to you, Corey. You live in the wolf capital of <laughs> the planet. We do. So that's a great question, and, and wolves definitely have changed the landscape when it comes to calling elk. Uh, I can remember hunting the area that we hunted back probably 15, 20 years ago, and it was just rich with elk. They would bugle, they'd respond to anything, and then wolves move in, and it's, it's definitely different. I think the thing that, that helps us is we have to get close, getting close to the elk before they'll talk. They know they're a dinner bell. If a bull's out there bugling, he's a dinner bell for a pack of wolves. So we have to get close to them. Uh, so it involves covering a lot more country. We can't just stand on a ridge and bugle and get four responses from a half mile away now. Sometimes we have to read the sign a little better and realize, okay, we're into elk right now. Let's give some calls. Uh, the other thing is, is just relocate. And it's, it's really, what I've found is those wolves are continually moving. They aren't gonna just stay in one area typically for eight or 10 days, they're moving. They'll be over on a ridge into another drainage. And five miles down the road, the elk might be screaming down there, but in this one drainage where the wolves are active, they're gonna be tight-lipped. So relocating, having backup areas is important. Uh, elk aren't as responsive. And, but I think, you know, they still, they're elk. They just, it's gonna take a little bit more work. As far as the actual calls, I don't think anything really has to change. It's just more the, the tactics of getting close to them and getting them to respond. And I tell people all that, cause I do, we live up out of Donnelly and so it's Wolf Central. And uh, they, they still bugle, just not as much, but you've got to cover a lot more country to find that one bull that's ready to bugle that day. I told you we always blame it on the camera guy. If the camera guy wasn't anywhere nearby, we always blame it on wolves as the fallback. <laughs> and if we're hunting in, a, in an area where, uh, I don't know if I should say this, this dives <laughs> into say politics, <laughs> but my, I got a bunch of really opinionated family members and they blame everything on the, what I'm about to say. But if, if the camera guys aren't there and if we aren't hunting where they're wolves, the default thing we're supposed to blame it on in my family is Obamacare. <laughs> so we do have a safety net for anything we want to blame it on. That came in handy in New Mexico a couple it years did, ago. It did. We had a lot of Obamacare statements. Marcus was there, and he, he doesn't make mistakes. No. And there were no wolves there. I know. So. So. Can you give me some tips for really quiet hunting? For really quiet hunting? The first thing I'd do is I'd take that Ryan Callahan hat off. <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> the other thing that, that I would do for quiet hunting is uh, I'd uh, move as slow and as quiet as you possibly can, right? I'd try to figure out what's the, what's the time of day. Sometimes the time of day, it's quieter than others. Uh, sometimes the wind will help you disguise your sound because the elk, they hear the wind just like you do. Uh, 
how you walk. I bet you you've got hunting mentors who tell you, you know, when you're walking, start with your heel and roll forward. Go slow. Uh, don't go as fast as Corey does. Corey's ever watched a Bugs Bunny road out road runner hour? <laughs> That's Corey going. He he just puts his foot down once in a while to change directions. He's just like a glimmering dot going through the woods. So don't go like Corey. Uh, and if I was you, I'd use this uh, Sitka covered Rocky Mountain hunting call bugle tube we're gonna give you, and make a lot of noise like Corey does. <laughs> And that'll that'll kind of make enough noise in the woods that you don't have to be quite as quiet. But I, he's probably got better advice than I do. But uh, I'll pay you twenty bucks for that Callahan hat. <laughs> do you want to sell your hat? Forty. <laughs> <laughs> you can borrow it? I don't want to wear it. I just want to help you out, make you a better hunter. <laughs> no, I'm kind, of a, I'm kind of the noise police in our hunting group, and Donnie's sitting right there, and, and he can attest to all the nasty looks I give him if he scuffs his feet or anything. But the thing is, is, is the people in front of you and behind you always make more noise than you do. So just get in the middle of the group and blame all the noise on them. <laughs> the only other thing is voices, human voices, they carry. And so just always remember to whisper. Be really quiet when you're out there in the woods with your voice. So. All right, and we gave away a Sitka-covered bugle tube. Is that? I, I think he gets one. Okay, yeah, so I, do, we have, do we have any... Uh, <clears throat> we may need some security here because these are a pretty hot item. So some of you don't know what he asked that was the secret ticket, but you'll find out eventually. <laughs> How's it going, guys? Um, I have two weeks vacation this year for, uh, for my archery elk hunt, and I'm centered around the, the fall equinox. Do you think it's more wise to end my hunt on the equinox, or should I start my hunt on the equinox, or kind of make it in the middle? What state? Idaho. You know me? Okay. So for me, you know, the fall equinox is important. That's kind of the trigger for the, the estrus cycle for the cows, which actually produces the peak rut. Uh, this year, I think it's on September 22nd or 23rd, if I remember right. Uh, so within five to seven days of that fall equinox is typically when I'm going to say that's when the, the actual peak rut is going to hit. The most cows are going to be bred and for me, I think leading up to the peak rut is when I would rather hunt. Once that peak rut kicks in, the bulls are concentrated strictly on breeding cows and to pull them away with calls or anything can be pretty difficult. They're also herded up. They're with the most cows they're going to be with. So trying to slip in and just stock in on them can be difficult. So I like to hunt leading up to the peak rut. With two weeks this year, um, the full moon hits, is it the what, 15th, I think, of September this year? Is that my... Anybody know? 14th, 15th, somewhere right in there. So full moon can be tough, especially with the heat in the early half. So if I was to pick two weeks, I would start there the 15th through the 30th and hunt that. I like to hunt early. If you can break it up and take a week early and go a week later, that might be a good option as well. I like to hunt big bulls before they get herded up so that 
September 3rd to the 10th timeframe can be really productive. This year should be good as well because you're going to have a, you know, about a half moon at that time. Uh, you're not going to have as many people out there. So if you can split it up and hunt like the 3rd to the 10th and then again from the 22nd or 23rd through the end of the month, that should give you about the best of both worlds. If you have to take two weeks straight, I would go the 15th through the 30th. And when Corey asked you what state it was, to me, I was interested to see what the answer is because for me, uh, I will always go towards the end of any season, especially in the southern tier of states, New Mexico, Arizona, whatever, just because your likelihood of hitting one of those really hot weather streaks and, you know, they're, they're in their bed before the sun even comes up and they're not out of their beds until after the sun goes down. I mean, you can hit it at any time, but the odds are if you go a little later in, in those places where that heat could be a problem, you, at least you change the, the likelihood a little more in your favor that the weather's gonna be a little cooler. I have a quick uh, calling question, so I think you should make Randy answer it. <laughs> Do you ever bugle quietly? I'm only a couple years in and sometimes I feel like I'm blowing the whole canyon out when I bugle because to get my sound right, I'm only proficient when I'm going full bore. I know soft calling with cow calls, that's, that's different. I can modulate, but with bugling, I have a really hard time toning it down, and sometimes it feels like I'm too loud when I'm real close. Randy? Bugle as loud and as often as you can. <laughs> <laughs> if they don't want to reply, just write it off that there aren't any elk there. And blame it on wolves. Yeah, blame it on wolves. But I, I kind of look at it like when I'm fishing a lot, I have all, my wife is a fanatic walleye angler. She's got electronics in, my, in our boat that make my TV setup at home look old. <laughs> but if I pull up there and I see fish on that graph, after about five minutes, if they don't bite, now they're carp and I move on. And <laughs> I treat elk the same way. I'm like the noisiest person in the woods. I learned most of this from Corey. He probably wouldn't take credit for anything I didn't do about calling, but I just call and loud. And if they don't want to bugle, fine. I don't want to mess with you. I, I got bigger and better elk to go after than you. So. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> Uh, Long-time whitetail hunter from Indiana who has learned a ton from you guys and has finally taken the plunge this year for a long-time dream to go chase elk in September. Um, following a lot of the stuff that you guys are covering on your e-scouting and uh, University of Elk hunting stuff I'm following along with. Uh, I'm picking a lot of good spots. I've got a few things picked out just like you've detailed five to ten places, but the one thing I'm really missing is just a known solid waypoint. So. I guess my question would be, if I could talk you out of one waypoint. How many dilly bars would that cost me? But what, I will start the bidding at $1,000. I have Randy's phone right here. Onyx map waypoints are all right here. Uh, what, what season are you hunting? September. That's what's archery season? Yeah, archery season, yeah. What state? Colorado. Colorado. Limited entry or over the counter? Go Hunt tells me I'm 100% in the unit I applied for limited entry. So we'll see. Uh -huh. Oh, I can't sell you a waypoint if I don't know what unit it is. 
Gunnison area. North or south? <laughs> 53, 54, or 55? 54. Okay. I've never hunted it. <laughs> <laughs> but next year, the draw odds won't be 100%. <laughs> uh, right. So, no, I, I, don't, I don't think either of us have a waypoint, but do you have a specific question about like where you would start or something like that? Sure. Where would you start? <laughs> uh, I'll leave that up to Corey. So that, you know, and that's a great question because I have hunted several areas that I've never been to before. And fortunately, between Google Earth and Onyx Maps, I have a fairly high confidence level that I can get into elk in an area without having been there before. So uh, first thing I'm going to look for is roads and find out where the access points are. I'm going to look for... Uh, big canyons have a lot of north facing on it because once elk get pressured, especially in Colorado, they're going to head to that north facing. Uh, I'm going to look for areas that are going to have water and open ridges with feed. Uh, I'm going to look for areas that aren't in the beetle kill or in the burn area, which I've never been to the Gunnison area, but I know a lot of Colorado has burn and has beetle kill and they're not conducive to elk. Burns sometimes are great. I love hunting burns, especially on the edge, but there are some areas in Colorado where it's just, it's dead stands of timber. So I'm gonna eliminate those areas. I'm gonna eliminate anything right next to a road. I'm gonna find areas with north facing slopes. And on Google Earth, you can get right in and see water. You can see green grass. Uh, you can change the imagery date and find out in July or August where the green spots are, that's gonna be water. And from there, I mean, it really, when you look at an area with that kind of a, a perspective, there's only gonna be eight or 10 areas that really stand out to you. And honestly, from there, I would say that you have a high probability of getting into elk in all eight of, or eight or 10 of those areas. So just spend a lot of time on Google Earth finding those points. Uh, you can transfer points back and forth between Onyx and Google Earth so that you can immediately go out there and walk right to that point. Uh, you can mark all the water locations and everything. So uh, if, you, if you look at it from that perspective on Google Earth, the good, el good elk areas really jump out fairly quickly. Uh, uh, one thing I'd add to that, Corey and I travel to hunt a lot, and a lot of times it's a place I've never been to. So my theory is, uh, I've got five days no matter where we go, because then we've got to be on to the next place. And we go by the strategy or the mantra of sort it out, figure it out, and hopefully pack it out. So don't let the, the vastness of the landscape intimidate you. When you put together your plan like Corey just described, stick with that plan. Have your option A plan, your B, C, and just keep working through that and don't give up on your plan. Most people, when they're not encountering elk, they say, yeah, I'm doing something wrong. Uh, obviously, I haven't got this figured out and they give up on their plan and they count on random luck. Well, if you're like me, my random luck out in the woods isn't always that good. But it, I, I mean, we can attest that we have plenty of our days where we go out, we don't hear anything, we don't see anything, but we've done it long enough that we're confident in what our plan is and we keep working at it. And the second day or the third day or pretty soon you encounter the elk that want to want to play. So don't, don't get discouraged. I know it's easy to say that, especially when we've been lucky enough to do it for decades and you, this is your first trip, but you'll probably have a pretty good plan worked up, stick to it and work the plan. 
And with that, I'll just add, you know, don't stick with one area if there's not elk there. I think, and that's not what you're saying, but have multiple backup areas and go from one to the next to the next until you get that action or until you get into elk. I used to make the mistake of just staying in one area and saying, I know this is a great area. I know there have to be elk here and spend my whole week hunting in that area and there weren't elk there. So relocate if you need to. And that's part of your plan. All right. Thanks, guys. You bet. So to the gentleman that was just up here, um, I'm actually a current student at Western Colorado University in Gunnison. <laughs> so having to kill one, feel free to shoot us a message over Facebook. Say, hey, I need some youngins to come help me pack this out. We'll send a few members your way. <laughs> but that being said, being a college student, my time is limited. So a lot of times I'm going out before class or after class, which could be, you know, 5.30 in the morning and I got class at 11. Or it could be I get out at 3 o'clock and it's dark at 6.30. What would you guys recommend for little short period hunts like that? Just something to get out there and get boots to the ground and just try and cover as much land as possible for those kind of situations. Archery or rifle? Rifle. Oh, a rifle. Yeah. Oh, you guys have Soon shorts. Soon to be archery. And what's that? Soon to be archery. Okay. So you guys have pretty short seasons in Colorado. Um, third and second season are both are nine days. Nine days, right. So my experience is I have way better luck in the morning when I'm doing short hunts. Uh, if you can, uh, it, it's some really cool country. We've filmed not far from there. I'm not whoever that was. I haven't been in Unit 54, <laughs> but I've been nearby. Uh and Take note, we've narrowed it down to two units that Randy hunts in Colorado. <laughs> uh, but uh, a lot of our hunts aren't that much different than if you only had mornings and evenings because we will go to a place where we can glass in the evening and very seldom do we end up getting an encounter on a bull we might see. Usually in that rifle season, they're in sanctuary mode because your second season is post-rut, your November 3rd season is in late late season and those bulls are in a real sanctuary mode they're not moving far they know that traveling across the landscape old pete did that last year and pete got a victory lap in the back of someone's f-150 and uh so if you can do that when you see say you go out in the afternoon hunt if you see that bull uh, skip class. You, you, you tell your professor, Randy Newberg told me to skip class today. He can call me <laughs> because that bull's going to be there the next morning. Get in there. I don't care what time you got to leave the trailhead to get there, but they're so predictable and so close to their areas that they, they aren't traveling a lot. That's your, I mean, it, that's like a gift if you see one in the afternoon be in there when the sun, be set up when the sun comes up the next morning. And you could probably do a bunch of those, you know, day hunts of short hunt in the evening, short hunt in the morning. And over the course of that nine day third season, you'd probably have an encounter or two. What's your major in college? I'm a wildlife biology major. So you could feasibly miss nine days and still pass? <laughs> 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 I'm sure if I wave some meat in my professor's face, <laughs> maybe. Just saying. <laughs> I grew up in uh, West Virginia, and I know that out there, like if you're rattling or calling, nine times out of ten, if you try to sound like the dominant animal, you're just going to blow out everything. 
So whenever you're doing a locator call on an elk, does it matter whether you sound like the dominant bull or should I try to sound more subordinate to get a reaction? Let me take that one? I would suggest you take that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, my philosophy is if I'm calling an elk, they're coming in for two reasons. They're either coming in because their desire to breed or their desire to fight. And if they are coming in for a desire to breed, I'm going to cow call. And if I'm using bugles at all, it's to elicit a fight out of them. And so I'm as aggressive and as big as I can be every time. Uh, location bugle is, is usually, there's not a lot of emotion in it. It's just a couple notes to blow out there and get a response. But once I move in and set up on that elk, it's 100%. Um, I, I don't even think about what size I am or what size he is. I'm trying to trip that trigger that's inside of them, that instinct to fight. And uh, so I'm, I don't even worry about blowing them out. In fact, I've had spikes come in with their eyes rolled back in their head, snot dripping off their nose, foaming at the mouth. You know, they don't know what's going on, but they're coming in to fight. And, you know, they come in and at some point come to their senses, but they, it's just a natural instinct for elk to come to a fight. So if you can challenge that elk, uh, I, don't, I don't buy into the philosophy that they can get pushed away because you're being too big. Now, wolves, hunting pressure, other things definitely make elk call shy, but the, all elk have that, all bull elk have that desire to fight if you can trip that trigger. And I found that being bigger and more aggressive trips that trigger even in the smaller bulls. You also get a bugle tube. Oh, Uncle Randy's being generous. Well, good afternoon. I've got the perfect question, I think, for, for Corey and Randy, because I've got a I've kind of rifle versus archery season type dilemma. So I have a, a general tag for, for Wyoming, either sex. Um, and because of my work schedule, I can only go at the end of September, the first part of October. And there are a few units in Wyoming where you can start rifle season like the 26th of September. So I'm, my dilemma is I'm trying to determine, do I just, do I archery hunt and then switch over? Or do I just, you know, dedicate myself to the rifle hunting the whole time through? Is there any issue in your mind of switching? And then if I could have a two-parter, how in the world, you know, I've got this, this dilemma of so many units to pick from because it's a general tag. Now, if I go rifle, I've only got those few. How long do you stick with a spot before you move? You know, you talk about you've got to have your, your multiple spots to go to. How long is enough and how long is too long? Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm going rifle hunting on September 26th, if I'm in. <laughs> I like to eat elk. <laughs> and I, you know, if he hangs up out there, because they're still going to be bugling on September 26th, if he hangs up out there at 120 yards, he's going to have a bad problem. So. Corey, he likes to have him on his lap. Don't get me wrong, I am too, but I, I can't get him on my lap as good as he can. So uh, one thing I would say is pick one or the other. I know how many times I've seen myself included, oh, I'm going to bring my bow and then I'm going to switch over to a rifle. I end up doing a half-baked job on both of them. Um, and to my version of your your second question is as far as how long would I stick with a unit? Um, if I, I, back to, I have a plan. I have my first day plan because in once rifle season opens, I, ha, I have my opening day plan and then I have the rest of the season plan because once the shooting starts, every, the, the deck gets reshuffled. So 
have that plan available for what you do opening day, go, I, I would use two days in advance to go and scout and hopefully find one, be keeping an eye on them and opening morning, kill them because they move at that time. After that, I'm as mobile as I possibly can be, um, whether it's bugling, whether it's glassing, I'm moving to different places, different locations, different glassing spots. I, I mean, on rare occasion, if I know there's an elk in there I'm trying to get, I'll stay there for five days of the season, but usually I'll give it a morning. If I haven't seen anything that evening, I'm in a different spot. And if I haven't seen anything, I'm in a different spot the next morning. So I'm, I'm pretty impatient, so. So in those units that open on September 26th for rifle, do they have an archery season that closes on the 25th and then it goes right into archery or yes, rifle? They do. So Randy, my question to you, would you use your scouting days, your two scouting days, would you pack a bow because archery season's open? Oh yeah, for sure, because yeah. I know it's gonna happen if I don't. <laughs> <laughs> right? just, just when you said pick one or the other and stick with it, I just thought, well, if I'm yeah. going scouting two days before and archery season's open, yeah. 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 But I, but I could go to the other units that run until, say, September 30th for archery and then switch over. But your point is well taken is after opening day of raffle season, things could be reshuffled. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Thank you. Hi. just wanted to say thanks for all you do with the Elk Talk podcast and for public lands and for steering people away from my home state of Utah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my question is about archery. So um, most female um, archery elk hunters that I know, we're shooting between 50 and 60 pounds and we tend to have lower draw lengths. Um, so my question to you is, do you have any recommendations on arrow builds since that's much more critical um, in our case uh, for this kind of hunting? So my daughter is 14, and last year was her first year archery hunting for elk. Uh, so we got, you know, that's a, a very valid question because elk are big animals, and you want penetration. So there's an argument of, do you want speed? Do you want weight? Do you want penetration? What, what contributes there? Um, I've done a lot of, of, of experimenting with arrows, and having a higher FOC and weight up front definitely helps with penetration. Uh, but what happens when you get all that weight up there is you lose speed. So then you're, you know, limit your range and everything. But I think inside 40 yards, uh, my son shot his bull two years ago with his bow, and I think he was at 51 pounds, and he probably had a 24-inch draw. And I don't know what his arrow weight was, um, but it was probably in the neighborhood of 350, 350 grains, somewhere in there. And he got great penetration at, you know, almost 40 yards on that elk. So uh, for me, I would definitely look at putting as much weight forward as you can. Um, so that's, you know, probably shooting 125 grain head instead of 100. That's going to help with penetration. And then just shoot your bow a ton. I think accuracy is probably far more important to me than worrying about uh, arrow setup and all of that. Just making sure you're proficient with it and able to put the arrow where it needs to go. If you get an arrow behind the shoulder of an elk at 40 pounds with a 300 grain arrow, it's going to penetrate far enough to, to kill it. So from there, if you're able to shoot 50 pounds and have a 350 to 400 grain arrow, I think that's more than, more than sufficient. Anything to add? No, but I love bison hunting in Utah. <laughs> so I had a question. Um, a lot of times when I'm out archery hunting, the elk will hang up. And if I'm by myself, I don't have a collar behind me. 
uh, they'll hang up, you know, 80 to 100 yards. I was curious if you have experience using like a cow decoy or anything that might entice them to come closer. I don't. I, I know a lot of people who use decoys, but I don't, uh, not because they don't work, but I already look like I ran away from home with the amount of junk in my pack <laughs> with camera gears. And I mean, if you saw us in the woods and wherever Marcus and Michael are, they'd probably be like, yeah, what are you complaining about, Randy? I got a 30 pound tripod and a camera. But so for that reason, I've never tried uh, decoys. So I, I don't know. If, well, yeah. First off, I know the, the frustration and the struggle of not having a collar back behind you, especially if they get hung up chasing grouse when they should be calling elk for you, but it's definitely frustrating to turn into a solo hunter all of a sudden when there's grouse seasons open. But um, a couple things. First off, when you're calling to the elk, they're usually going to be coming straight at you, so you have to really consider your setup and set up in a place where you have to pull that bull in. Because once an elk gets to a point where he can see where the call's coming from, if you're 150 yards across the meadow and you're set up behind the only tree in that meadow, that elk's gonna come to the edge of the meadow and not come any closer, because he can tell right where the sound's coming from and doesn't see an elk. So you have to set up in a way that's gonna make him come into your shooting lane before he can get a visual of where the sound's coming from, whether he can see you or not, that's, that's important. Um, when it comes to decoys, I've had 50-50 luck with them, and I can't explain it. I've tried to, to figure out what the difference is, and I don't know. It's just, it's been 50-50. Sometimes an elk will be coming in, he'll hang up, we'll flash a decoy to him, and he'll come charging right to us to 10 yards. Other times we'll flash a decoy and he'll see it and he'll turn and run straight away. So I use, it, I use a decoy as a last resort, just simply we've done everything we can. The elk's not coming any closer, he's hung up. Let's flash a decoy and see if we can break him loose. And it, like I said, it's a last resort. If he leaves, I didn't have anything to give to, to try to get him closer anyway. So when you're hunting by yourself, though, the, the biggest thing is your setup if you're calling. Just make sure that that elk is not going to be able to see where you're calling from when he gets to 60 or 80 yards. Make sure he has to come into your setup before he can see where you're at. Cool. Thank you. Really enjoy your work. Uh, really enjoy Marcus's work, I think, is... Uh, uh, cinema photography is amazing. Makes you guys look wonderful. <laughs> he doesn't. He, he doesn't have a lot to work with, so that's even more remarkable. Um, I have a, a, a question on on cows late season. I've had a uh, unit ten Arizona tag for uh, last couple of years. Got one again this year. Uh, last year I was in an area wasn't seen. No, I didn't see any people. First day scouting, maybe one person, and then nobody for seven days. And uh, felt good seeing a lot of sign. Uh, looked like bull sign. Uh, you know, it wasn't you know a lot of individuals and fairly large. And it was a fairly recent sign. Then started seeing bulls, and I'm wondering if seeing bulls should I go? You know, still hang out in that area in a late season or? Uh, should I go try something different? And uh, uh, cows and bulls really totally separated, or you know, or is it that still, you know, oh, don't leave uh, elk if you if you see elk. Does it matter on uh, antlerless or or uh, or the cows? Thanks. So the Arizona guys are going to hate me with this one. You you go to Williams, you go north. You know where the SB Road is. <laughs> 
You know where it crosses Cataract Canyon? All right. It's closed walk-in only area. When you cross Cataract, there's a first turn off to the left. Walk south along there and get up on the ridges above Elk appropriately named Elk Tank. And you can glass forever and you will see cows, you'll see bulls. Uh, but as a general rule that time of year, if you're seeing groups of bulls, it's not necessarily a place where the cows are going to be because, again, the cows are focused on food, 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 food. Well, you've just had the late bull rifle season after when, just before that cow season comes in. So those bulls are going to be in heavy sanctuary mode. They're going to be down in those canyons or like cataract and all the finger canyons off it. The cows are going to be more up on the benches, but they're going to be coming down on the lips of those canyons to bed in the morning and repeating that process in the evening. But, uh, what we do, and some people are going to know where we hunt in Arizona here. Can't believe I'm saying this, but uh, we we'll get up on on one side of the canyon where we can glass with the sun at our back in the morning, and then we'll reverse that process in the evening with our sun at the back or at our back. And those cows are also quite consistent in where they're going to be and what their behaviors are. So if you can glass them even from afar, you know, what is that season like five or six days? Okay, so I think. I, I'd go into that area south of the SB road because it's roaded off or, or gated off. And so no charge for that advice. <laughs> As uh, another Arizona, and I'm okay with you sending people to unit 10. It doesn't bother me. Um, my dad, as he's becoming older, he's less mobile. So he's more of a road hunter, but I'm kind of going more towards the <clears throat> on foot back country style. How can I incorporate both styles so that we both have a good experience? Is there a way, I guess, is my question. Well, Randy and I are able to hunt together and it works out. <laughs> I guess since Nissan Titan sponsors me, that makes me the road hunter as a two, right? <laughs> I, I know you, got, you want to tackle that. You know, yeah, it's, it's, your priority has to be about hunting with your dad. And that's, uh, you know, he's probably spent years with you. I know for me, um, it, it isn't always easy hunting with youth or with children and our parents pay those dues. And, and so to return that favor and cater the hunt to him, I mean, obviously there'll be times when you go and hunt your style and and he's not able to go, but I think it's really important to take that time and share that experience with him at whatever level he can go and uh, make it about him. And then, you know, maybe there's an opportunity where he can drop you off and pick you up 10 miles on the other side where you come out or um, when he's ready to start cooking bacon and eggs at camp, that's a, that's a great thing as well and he can go out. But, you know, spending that time together and, and doing that is, is super important. Yeah, someone. Yeah. As someone whose dad is no longer here, trust me when I say that you would give many days of elk hunting to spend one more day with hunting, hunting with him. And Corey's right. You're, you have a lot more elk hunting days in your front windshield than he does. So make it his priority. All right. Well, we've got a, we're doing Instagram live here, so let's go to Instagram. Anybody on Instagram? We've got several questions coming through. 
Does Randy ever use elk calls? How about especially in late season? Late season elk calling? Nope. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure our friend at Rocky Mountain Hunting Caller is saying, Randy, wrong answer. <laughs> no, I, I actually, I don't. I, I carry a diaphragm call with me. And a lot of times when we're going in on a stock, I'll put it in my mouth because if that, so most people only hunt with us once. And they're like, I don't need that headache anymore. We look like the traveling circus. We got two camera guys. We got me. We got the hunter. The odds are this elk is going to get scared before we get in a shooting position. And I know that all that movement, all that noise increases the likelihood that this elk is going to bust before we get a setup. But a lot of times, if you have that diaphragm in your, in your mouth, that elk, gets up and is looking around, you can at least hold them there for an extra couple seconds with a quick cow call, or if they are moving off, you can just wail on that thing. And for me, having a cow call in my mouth is, is really helpful, but that's, in these late seasons, I, that's the only time I do it. Yeah, I guess the, to answer that question, um, specifically late season, I wouldn't use elk calls hoping to call in an elk, but like Randy said, I don't, I don't go elk hunting without an elk call. I'll always have an elk call, whether, you know, you get out there in November sometimes. I've heard elk bugling mid-November, and if I happen to be out rifle hunting mid-November and the elk are bugling and I don't have a bugle, I'm going to feel really uh, underprepared there. So I always have elk calls with me regardless of the season. I just don't rely on them outside of, you know, September 1st through about October 15th. I rely on elk calls. After that, I have them, but... That's not my main main method of hunting style. I thought Corey was going to throw me under the bus there. Uh, <laughs> if you watch an episode, Corey and I hunted together in New Mexico, and about the fourth day, this bull bugles, and Corey's like, I'm going to move up. He lets out a couple just ripping it, and we can hear this thing coming. And I got Ben and Marcus over my shoulder, and I'm like, uh-oh, I forgot to put the diaphragm call in my mouth. And the bull comes walking up through this little opening in the pinions. I come to full draw. I'm hoping he's going to stop. He doesn't stop. And I'm like <laughs> whistling. And finally the bull stops, but he's already through the little opening at like 25 yards. And I'm, <sighs> Corey can see the bull down there. He can see me and I'm sure he's thinking, what's going on? The bull runs off and I walk up to Corey and he's like, Did, uh, why didn't you cow call? I look down in the dirt like, um, I didn't have a cow call in my mouth. If you want to see how fast Corey can hike, he, he, I know he wanted to chew me out. He's like, well, let's go find another one. <laughs> but... Uh, so, if I remember right, that was the only elk we called in in eight days of hunting. Yeah, it was, it was like a 12-mile day. And Corey was so mad at me, he walked way up this hill, found a little shady spot. And he, in little broken sticks, he spelled, I hate elk. But then when I walked away, he got rid of the elk. And I think he put Randy in there. <laughs> Because when I came walking back, he kicked out whatever he had in the dirt there. But point being, hey, even in archery season, I always have a diaphragm call in your mouth. I, I mean, if, if there's ever an example, I'm sure those of you who have watched it are like, Nuberg, you idiot. What, what? Well, 
I had my diaphragm call tucked inside my BFHS bino harness. Did me a lot of good there. How y'all doing? We're good. Uh, How my are you? question is, what is the best caliber? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my brother lives in Colorado, and I'm trying to get him to get an over-the-counter uh, bull tag or any tag. What's a, I've never hunted before um, for elk, and he's never hunted, period. What's a good way to select a unit for over-the-counter? Archery or rifle? For him, rifle. Oh, okay. Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife does a really good job of publishing on their website uh, the draw odds or the, the uh, harvest statistics by unit. Uh, Corey and I both use Go Hunt, the insider service. It's got all this stuff. Uh, but I look at what are the harvest rates. Uh, they, they, all that information is out there. What's the bull to cow ratio? What's the cow to calf ratio? Is this uh, a unit that's trending up? Is it flat? Is it trending down? So those are the first things I look at uh, when I'm picking a unit. And obviously it's got to be one of those, what is it, 92 or 93 units that are in the over-the-counter segments. Uh, and then I also look at what kind of terrain do I like to hunt? Some people like to hunt dark timber. Some people like to hunt high alpine. Me, yeah, I like to hunt kind of broken country that's in the, the transition range from, so you got the, the summer range up really high in Colorado. You got the winter range down low. And if I'm in a second season over the counter, I'm going to be in the upper part of that transition range. If I'm in the third season, I'm going to be in the lower part of that transition range. And so I look out. I get on my Onyx maps and look and say, which which of these units with good trend harvest data and bull to cow uh, data, which of those look like the kind of place I like to hunt? So that's really not a science, but it's how I go about it. Thank you. Well, wait, I know I don't know much about Facebook, but I know it only runs for 60 minutes and it just turned off. That was Instagram. Oh, <laughs> shows what I know about Facebook. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty new to elk hunting still, and uh, I recently drew an archery elk tag in the Missouri River Breaks, and I've never hunted that country um, for any species. I know it can be really hot, and I'm also going to be hunting in an area that has a lot of pressure. Um, so what would your tips for calling and picking a spot um, in an area that can potentially be really hot and have lots of people running around? You've hunted the Missouri Breaks before. I'll let you answer. <laughs> South side or north side? <laughs> South side, so 410. <laughs> so right. park where? Where does she park? All right. You, it. <sighs> so there's a lot of elk south of the river, um, further south of the river but I don't hunt further south of the river. Um, you know, there'd been some burns in there. Uh, we did an episode in there. I think we did that in 2011 or 12. Uh, and there's great forage everywhere in that part of the breaks. Um, the hunting pressure is gonna be where the roads are. Uh, and uh, you got a mountain bike? I do. All right, so a lot of those US Fish and Wildlife Service roads are gated but you can ride your mountain bike on there like 30 miles an hour, as long as it doesn't rain. 
if it rains, you're screwed. Uh, then you just got about a 45 pound piece of metal you got to carry out of there. <clears throat> um, but yeah, it gets a lot of hunting pressure. Oh, I thought that was Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I do. I do hunt it a, a lot. I have. I, I haven't for a few years, but I used to hunt it all the time. And there is a lot of hunting pressure there. And but it, that's all going to be near roads. And you'll hear a lot of guys say, "Boy, I've really been getting after it." Well, the the real break country. I mean, the tough country from where the mouth of the muscle shell dumps in all the way up north and around, when you drop off into those breaks, it's not pretty. And I've never run into any other hunters there. The other part is a lot of those elk, because there is a lot of pressure, they do get, if you want to call it, call shy or what, you know, they, they just get dialed into the fact that there's a lot of hunters there. Uh, you'll almost be spotting stocking. Um, watch them, let them go to their beds, and that's another way to do it. I. I all the times we've been there, the calling has been very challenging just because of how many people are there and it can get really hot early in the in the season. Do not go down by the river in the first half of September unless you want to be making a large blood donation to the mosquitoes. Uh, it's, I mean, anyone who hunts there, it's one of the most mosquito infested joints when you get down by the river. Maybe elk are immune to mosquitoes, but they don't seem to be bothered by it, but I am. Uh, so I don't know if that helps, but. Can you tell them what units you hunt so they can start? <laughs> What'd you tell them all? Oh, Randy hunts his units. Come and ask questions. I tried about to take the units. microphone away from you. Hi. What tips would you have for a guy who's never called elk, bugled? How would you go about doing that without angering everybody in your area. <laughs> Randy, I'll let you take that one. <laughs> Call, I have a friend like Corey. <laughs> you know, there, there's the old saying, you don't need a hunting dog if you have a friend who has one. Uh, you don't need to be a great elk caller if you got a friend who has but that's, that's probably not the right answer. <laughs> now, so you've never called before? No, not, not bugled or anything, just stalked and... So diaphragm calls, have you used diaphragm calls at all? Yeah, just okay. cow, cow calls, capuchis, okay. things like that, but never bugled. I've heard people bugle before, but it's, I've never gotten into it. So we just published four uh, short videos on our YouTube channel, on the Elk One on YouTube channel, that walk you through how to use a diaphragm, how to make cow calls, and how to bugle with it. I'd start there as the very basics. Um, a lot of times people put a diaphragm in their mouth and they'll hear an elk bugle and they're instantly trying to replicate that sound. And so they pick up all sorts of bad habits when it comes to calling elk and sounding good. It's, it's really hard to correct someone that's been calling badly a long time. So it's really good and important to start off on the right foot with those sounds. So start with the very basics, go through the mechanics of those sounds. As far as when you're actually out in the woods, I keep it simple. So when it comes to bugling, I only use, I use a location bugle and a challenge bugle. And those are the only two sounds that I make when I'm hunting for the most part. And that's really all you need to call in elk. So don't complicate it and try to learn 30 different elk sounds and go out there and, and do a mediocre. 
learn two sounds, perfect them, and do them right, and you'll be fine. You'll be able to call in elk. You won't make anybody mad other than the guys that you're calling in who you fooled, and they think that you're an elk. So, And that's a good problem. Do you recommend going in the off-season to practice? Oh, practice all year long. Yeah, not out in the woods necessarily, but on your drive to work, have a diaphragm in your mouth practicing with it. Um, if your wife will tolerate it, you know, at breakfast, wake the kids up with a bugle. In the grocery store, if you get separated from your wife, let out a bugle. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. Yep, absolutely. And disregard what Corey said. Go listen to my podcast on marriage advice. It'll dissuade you from doing what Corey just said. <laughs> Um, I got a quick question. I've got two boys and one, they're both here. One of them's ADD, can't sit for five minutes. The other one's got a ton of patience, shot a 6.0 last year over a wallow. But we had a contentious argument and it centered around Corey. My uh, <laughs> oldest son said that you shot your biggest bull in Arizona over a wallow. And they argued back and forth and we had this big long talk over is that true or not? I just, I just have to hear it from you. <laughs> so, the story in Arizona, we, uh, I don't sit. I don't stalk animals. I, I like to call them. I like to run and gun and call. But I've learned that you can't always do that and be successful, and you have to be willing to adapt your tactics. So in Arizona, uh, Donnie and I found a bull that was a giant. And we focused our efforts on that. In fact, Steve Chappell is a good friend of mine. He was down there guiding and I took the video over and showed him in his camp and said, look at this bull, what do you think it scores? And he's like, I don't know what it scores, but hunt that bull the rest of the season. And so we'd focused on it. We couldn't find water. We didn't know where it was going for water. It was traveling a long ways. It didn't have cows yet, which was a good thing. And uh, we called it into 40 yards. It had one step to take and didn't clear the brush and left. But anyway, as we're looking for it, we stumbled in the dark into a water hole. And it wasn't on the map, and we just decided that's where that bull's coming. And so the next more, or that the next hunt, we, uh, we went there and set up just on it, just to see if that bull was coming in and to get an idea. And we did some calling there. A bull answered from up on the ridge and came down, and I knew it wasn't the big one we were hunting, so I wasn't all that interested until I saw it turn broadside. And so it was, we, we called... I don't know if that brought it into the water. It came into the water. I shot it 40 yards from the water hole and uh, it ran up the hill and died. It was not the big bull we were hunting though. They shot the big bull in rifle season. It scored 417. So did you call them in or not? How big are your boys? <laughs> uh, the, the video is on YouTube. I know, we couldn't decide. <laughs> uh, I would say, Yes and no. You should run for office. I was going to say, you're a politician now, Corey. Thanks. Hey, guys. Hey. So I, uh, me and a group of four other guys put in for mid-October uh, Colorado. I think it was 77, maybe? It's south of Creed. Anyways, we're going into wilderness area on mule and horseback there's going to be four or five of us would you recommend splitting up into a group of two and a group of three um or do you think that's going to matter given it's it's rifle we're not you know we're not going to be 30 yards from them so <clears throat> you're gonna all go in together to your base camp probably yes 
I'd split up into groups of one. Okay. And I just because of, the more dispersed you are across the landscape, the greater likelihood that one of you is going to find an elk. Um, and groups of two or three are twice or three times as much noise, movement, scent. Uh, you have, if someone's there with you, you have a tendency to talk or whisper, you get bored, you start talking about the football game or whatever it is. And I would, each of you pick a different spot every day and go after it. And, you know, you're probably not going to be that far from each other where if someone shoots, you know, have some system of, hey, if you're a shot, do this or meet up here or whatever. But I would, if, if everyone's comfortable, um, I'd split up into as as many small groups as possible and more than two or, or a group that cons, consists of less than two or three. Okay. Appreciate it. You realize a group that consists of less than two is one. I'm an accountant. I understand that. <laughs> April 15th was just two weeks ago, though. I just wanted to make sure. I know. I'm... Yeah, anyone want any tax advice? I'm probably more qualified to give tax advice than I am elk hunting advice. So, but Marcus just gave me the either like some sort of ghetto, like gangster sign, or was that five minutes? Oh, we got five minutes. So, who's going? Who's in the calling contest tonight? Yeah, calling contest six thirty. Who's who's participating in the calling contest tonight? Who is not participating simply because they forgot their bugle? All right, we got a question here, I guess. Um, I was just wondering if you guys would share uh, some of your recipes, but not for just regular elk meat, but more like organs, like the heart, liver, other stuff that people usually don't eat, like the tongue. I think we ought to have Marcus do that question. Marcus will eat anything. I think if you could make the hooves edible, Marcus would eat the hooves and the teeth. And but I, I don't. I'm not an organ guy, really. Uh, Marcus is the scavenger. Uh, I, <laughs> I, 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 I take uh, the heart. Very, it's it's my my favorite part of the elk is the heart. Um, and I do it as simple as possible. A little bit of olive oil. Um, and maybe a little bit of, uh, there's this company, Dog Day Spice Rubs. Uh, I use their spice rubs on stuff and I cut the heart very thin and fry it really quick and not, not very well. I mean, like, don't overcook it because it's already kind of rub, heart's kind of rubbery anyhow. So you trim it up real good. And, and that's not a very complex recipe. Uh, on our content, on our YouTube channel, I tell Marcus and Michael, if it takes more than a minute to explain how to do it, it's way too complicated for me. <laughs> and so and it probably doesn't help much, but. I have a great story that goes along with that though. Can I tell a story? I don't know what you're talking about, but go ahead. Okay. No, I had a, a friend that was hunting the backcountry rifle season in Idaho several years ago, and he goes way deep and got back in there, and a bull came across the hill below him, and he shot it, and it ran about 100 yards, and another shot went out. And he went walking down there and couldn't believe there was anybody there, number one, and got down, and there were three guys from out of state that were down there. And as he walked up on the elk, he said, uh, you know, hey, guys, I, I shot this elk. I'm like, no, you didn't shoot this one. 
And he's like, no, this is the bull I shot. It was 40 yards from me. And like, no, it hadn't been shot when it came by us. It was running just fine, and we shot it. And so he's there. There's three guys all holding rifles. And he's like, I'm not getting into an argument back here with it. And he's like, all right, well, good luck to you. And turned to walk off, and they said, hey, just a minute. Uh, do you happen to have a knife with you? And he said, you're four and a half miles back in here and didn't bring a knife? I'm like, yeah, we forgot our knife. And he said, all right. So he pulls out his knife and hands him the knife, and they said, uh, we don't really know how to, how to do this. We don't know how to gut an elk. And he's a better man than I am, but he said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And he said, uh, on one condition, he's like, do you guys eat the internal organs? And they said, uh, no, we don't eat the internal organs. We're, we just you know, want the quarters. And he said, well, if I can take the internal organs, I'll, I'll go ahead and gut this for you. And so they agreed to it. So he gutted it and reached back in there and he grabbed the internal organs that are called the tenderloins <laughs> right there. <laughs> Grabbed those and put in his pocket and said, good luck packing it out. And walked off, so. I think I know who that guy was. Those are the only internal organs I eat are the tenderloins. So. Yeah. Right. Now, I, I know a lot of people who eat the tongue and, and other stuff like that. And uh, it, it's all very edible. Me with the liver, this is just a traditional thing that goes along with my hanging antlers and trees, which drives Corey completely nuts when I hang shed antlers in the trees. Is uh, that's friends of mine who are uh, tribal members uh, that I used to hunt with. Part of their uh, spiritual belief was offerings back, and so they'd do antlers. Uh, they'd also do the liver. Uh, they'd put the liver in about some place, and it was an offering thing. And I know that might be crazy, but for me, it's it's just part of what I I grew up doing, and I feel yeah, I know it's kind of weird, but I, I leave the livers out there for the magpies or the whatever. Okay. Thank you. You said uh, you can, if you can explain it in less than a minute, then it can be a good recipe. I usually cook the heart and like I'll do shanks and stuff like that. Um, not the liver, but the tongue. And if you, uh, if you simmer it for four to six hours with pickling spice on low, it comes out tender and delicious. So, hmm. Thank you, John. Excellent. Thank you. We got one more bugle tube to give away. How we do. do I'm looking at my first bow purchase coming up. Would either of you, my question is this, would either of you consider used or recommend against or for a used bow? Used bow? Yeah. Oh. A used bow. It's a strange question, but uh, should I consider or, or not consider a used bow? I, I sell a lot of used bows, so I'd strongly suggest that you, <laughs> that you consider on. that option reliably. Okay. No, I, I think the important thing there is is making sure you're you're getting set up with one that fits you. Yeah. And I see so many people that are shooting a bow that the draw length is three inches too long or too short, or it's completely out of tune because they've changed something on it. Uh, that's probably the most important thing. Used bows are great. Bows last, you know, as long as you replace the string on them, no issues there. Uh, I would just make sure that you're getting one that's fit for you. Right. Thanks. So we just got the <laughs> cut it, uh, but sir, you, you get this last elk tube. I'm there. pretty sure he raised his hand and said he wasn't entering the contest I, I know, because he didn't have a bugle. I, that's the, you raised your hand and said I'd enter, but I don't have a bugle. So now so see you, out there at you have a bugle. So well. Uh, Thank you all for being here. We, we just got the indicator that we got to leave, but thanks so much. Thanks for following our podcast and uh, have a great, great time.